Welcome to the Story Discovery Podcast. I'm your co-host, J.W. McAteer. Coming up, you'll hear a new story from our free online publication, Etched Onyx. Please join me and co-host, Melissa Collings, after the reading, when we talk with the author about their work and all things writing and otherwise. The Story Discovery Podcast is sponsored by Scrivener, the go-to app for writers of all kinds, used every day by best-selling novelists, screenwriters, nonfiction writers, and more. Think of Scrivener as the Swiss Army knife of writing apps. You can use just the parts you need, like the distraction-free writing view, or you can break out all the tools to plan, organize, research, and create your work. When you're done, you can easily export to multiple document, manuscript, and ebook formats. Our listeners get a 20% discount by using the coupon code Story Discovery at checkout. You can learn more at their website, literatureandlatte.com, or just type Scrivener into your search engine. Give Scrivener a try, you won't regret it. This podcast and all related materials are a production of Onyx Publications. All stories are copyright 2021, all rights reserved. Today's story is The Light Body. Written and narrated by Tiffany Wojnowski. Settle in and enjoy. The Light Body by T. Wojnowski. It's women who come to me mostly. Men don't carry much, just their mamas, a treasured old grudge, and a couple of girls. The girls never age. You'd be shocked how many guys are walking around with 15-year-olds. And they're not sitting on some shelf either. These girls weigh on them. Still, it's nothing compared to us. We've got 18 copies of our mothers by the time we're 20. The sins of our no-good uncles, our husband's mother for the ones silly enough to marry. After the economy crashed, I saw girls hobbled by whole houses. Family so wretched I couldn't tell who was still alive. Then there's the normal things. Lost pets, ancestors, sweating men in cars, whole frozen landscapes. One girl back home in Tetovo had a whole pond, drowned sisters still at the bottom. We carry everything. Ma used to say, it's bitches who pull the sled. During lockdown, we all bled. The landlords, the gelato man with his icy sludge, and the sad gondoliers who drifted all season, barely dipping a paddle. I followed the locals back over the neighborhood bridges and harassed them till they let me into their yards. I only had a split second to grab them before they slammed their gates. Signora, that man is draining your energy. Let me take him off your back. Or a quick spell, amico, for some peace from that lady and they turn and hiss through their masks. How did you know? I'm an energy healer. That's what I tell them. Everyone's heard of energy and auras. Everyone thinks they walk around in rings of colored light. When the quarantine was lifted, masked tourists came flooding back into the square, ready to touch and be touched and waving piles of money for it. That was when business got good. My flatmate, Ree, and I had signed our lease in high season, 
when the cruises dumped their passengers onto the Piazza San Marco like a plague of shiny lice. I can't explain what I really see, and it's not my bad Italian. Even at home, I couldn't. Not even to my ma, who was a saint, or my brother Losh, who wasn't. There are no such things as auras, or if there are, I don't see them. Here's what I do see, a crowd. Imagine you laid out a bedsheet on the floor and piled everything that bothers you on it. I'm talking old loves, pets, even parts of places. Then imagine you tie the sheet around your waist and drag it all with you everywhere you go. That's what we do, drag around a whole attic of people and things. Even babies have sweet little napkins wrapped around their waists. They start out empty and then they fill up. A pet bunny here, a bad mark there. The collection keeps growing as long as you live, like your nose. Stupid woman, what are these people made of, you'll ask me, and that I can't tell you. They feel like flesh when I work on them. The people have skin and clothes, the pet's fur. Everything feels as it does in the world. It's ridiculous, you'll say. I'm alone. There's no one else. All I can say is, come see me. I don't lay hands on anyone, but when I work, you'd swear I did. One lady I saw during the quarantine kept whipping around to catch me, but I was always the full two meters off. When I finished, she shook herself and raved. Stupendous, incredible, never better. I come from a family of Smiths. I'm the only seer. Daddy used to joke that my real father was somewhere in Romania, reading palms and stealing silver. If he was drinking, he'd kick Ma's chair when he said it. I don't know when she would have found the time. She was always at Daddy's side, poking up the fire as he'd pounded out pots and kettles. I never said what I saw, but I worked on them, especially Ma. She carried a lady with my eyes and a full purse who just stared at me when I shouted. I thought her ears didn't work. Mother of my mother's mother, give it here. I had to pry the bag out of her hands and rub the tarnish off her coins. Afterwards, Ma walked easier. Her knees stopped hurting. That was how I learned to heal. It's mostly dusting. I might as well work in a museum. We work in our flat, Marie and me. It isn't much. Two doors connected by the mildewy soggiorno, our tiny living room, and a tinier kitchen, a bathroom, and a box for each of our beds with blinds that slap in the wind. My family's dead, and hers might be. Neither of us bothers with friends, just work, sleep, and back to work. She's a healer too, but with massage. She plays rain sounds all day that make the house feel like a forest instead of just damp. Rie carries beautiful things, gold statues, a wooden house full of children. She never asks me to work on her, but when she nods off over dinner, I dust her house and wipe the children's faces. I liked her right away. From the first night, we were boiling ravioli and complaining about our clients. We were hanging one of my velvets over a stain on the wall when she said, I think gypsy people have gift. The air drained from the room. I'd heard that word a thousand times, but from Italians. I didn't want to tell her. 
I wanted to keep eating pasta and laughing about the stuck-up locals. But I felt Ma and Daddy close at my heels. For their sake, for lashes even, I said. Gypsy isn't such a nice word. Her side of the velvet dropped like a shot animal. She turned to me, eyes wide. I'm sorry. I shrugged, but I was glad. Clients say it. What'd you say instead? Roma. We picked up the ends of the velvet again. Like the city. She drove the tack into the wall. You have Roma people in China? I'm Thai. Her cheeks turned red and slapped looking. Now it's my turn to be sorry. We laughed. Then we divided up the puffy squares in the pot, cutting the last exactly in half. I can make you lose weight, I joke, and my clients laugh. Everyone wants to lose weight. Even my new client, who's already thin, and expensive, with a high forehead and a blouse she must have ironed for a week. I can't tell if she's old or young. Her eyes are tacked in place, but the skin on her neck is loose. She's hiding the rest of her face under a satin mask that looks like half a bra. Her crowd is organized into rows, all lined up for the opera or school. Even her cloth is silky and tied in a sash. I reach for my own bulky knot, coarse as it comes, peasant cloth. We can't change. We're made of what we're made of. You rent this space? She looks around, eyes sharp and alert, recognizing it. It's the kind of place she'd be in if she hadn't earned those clothes, the trick face. I shrug, not going along with her, not telling her off. Close your eyes for me. She does, setting her bag in her lap, as if I was interested. I step into the crowd she's carrying and get right up in the faces. They're packed tighter than passengers on a vaporetto in high season, a normal high season. The one right on her heels is a girl, her body barely lived in. Narrow and long, brown hair varnished like a good table. Heavy when I lift her. Interesting. Everyone wants to hear that. I glance at the woman. Her eyes twitch, but don't open. This girl is an old self. Women always have a couple. Bodies before they were ruined. Faces that haven't paid yet for laughing. This lady has enough to fill the room. And a bunch of scrawny girls, schoolmates probably, or cousins, in dresses so cheap the fabric creaks. A brown dog with silky ears. The usual grandparents. A smiling woman at a chalkboard. A teacher. I snort. She wouldn't smile like that if she were my teacher. Teachers never like us. Miss always gave me 50%, even when I had the same answers as the girl who was always first in class. Miss wouldn't shake Ma's hand at the Roditelska, parent night. She told Ma in front of everyone that I was clean enough and might get work someday, mopping floors in some restaurant. Ma spat on the ground when she got home. Don't go back, she told me. But I did, for a couple years. I'm going through some old man's pockets, looking for clues when I feel the snag. Losh is shoving someone. A young guy this lady's carrying. He elbow checks him, knocking him off his feet. 
it's an old move. He always started his fights like that. I stare at them as they scuffle. This is impossible. They can't see each other. They're not made of anything at all. Most just stand still and let me clean them. A few dance, a few babies crawl if they were copied that way. I remember how Lash fought, but that's not the copy I carry. I have a kind one. He tilts back in his chair, hair just ruffled by Ma, or me. But he's standing now, chair knocked flat. I glance at the lady. She must feel it. They're crashing into the others, snagging our cloths. She passes her hand over her eyes like something hurts. It's happening. Some rough energy. Imagine all the things in your room started floating like they do in space. That's the kind of rule Lash is breaking. And it's not even Lash, just my copy of him. My copy of him fighting a copy of this guy he wants to kill. It's impossible. The world doesn't work this way. I pull them apart, but Lash keeps shouting. He's not making a sound, of course, but I can see his throat rattling. The lady peeks at me. Who is it? I scratch my chin. I always make the client speak first and second. Who's haunting me? I look at her guy, standing behind the girls like a coward. Lash is on the edge of my cloth, smiling now, sweet talking. Before a fight, his voice always got low and syrupy, like he was coaxing a girl. Come and take it like your mother did. You know you want it. He was right. They always did. It's a man, I say finally. A brother, maybe? He has to be. They have the same flute for a nose. She gapes at me and starts talking. They all do. He was in some trouble. Brothers always were. Lash was no different. He worked a little, shouted at Ma, and got sentimental after a bottle of rakia. When we slept out in the yard, he wailed folk songs along with the radio, and his hammock shook with him as he wept. Sometimes he didn't come home at all, and Ma had to yell at him the next day while I stared at whatever lady he was carrying. My favorite wore a blue slip and let me comb out her soft black hair. I named her Elizabeth because she looked like a queen. He must have really loved her because she was heavy. Lash's teeth were always hurting, but he wouldn't go to the stomatologue or saw between them with thread like Miss showed us. Instead, he carried a packet of needles to jab into his gums. I could tell his mood by the one he chose. Fine when he was pleased, thick when he was cranky, ready for a fight. He let me watch, sighing when he was done and swishing rakia around his mouth. Fuck, that burns. It was a man's job, like hammering out a jizve, a Turkish coffee pot for patching. I'd watched him do it a thousand times in thick gloves that snuffed the sparks. I loved to watch the red hearts of the pots glow in his grip. One night he came home, stumbling and smelling sick. I was still awake, working through my mother's ancestors as she slept. By then, everyone knew I had the touch. Never mind that, Fen, come here. He showed me the knot on his gums. I was to punch him and knock out the pointy dog's tooth. 
It was nothing, he said. It was already loose. I balled up my fist and ran at him, but I couldn't keep my fingers clenched. He shoved me, making me trip, and began to insult me. Bitch. Kurva. Or, You can't heal anyone. For that, I found the strength. Such strength I never knew I had. It ran through my arm, liquid and metal. I connected, knuckle exploding that spongy red bubble. Lush spat out the tooth, laughing already. He carried me for a few days while my hand healed, but it was a smaller me, a few years behind. The lady's Italian is breaking. She's not from here. She's from somewhere east, like me, somewhere poor. Does Macedonia mean anything to you? I'm careful. I say it the Italian way with the cha at the center. Just a word I've fished up from the spirit world. Not home. She sits up as if I'd shocked her. Her eyes fix on the velvet covering the wall as if there's a message hidden in it. I see a death, I add. Death, sure. But I see everything else, too. The high forehead, the accent. She's Albanian. Kosovar, maybe. Her brother was one of the boys who came into our selo, our village, to gun us down. We weren't who they were looking for, but we were easy to find. We made enough noise with our yard full of metal. She gives up on my velvet and looks me over. Where are you from? Napoli. I've been to Naples once. I liked the crowds and dark faces and the families living all over their porches. Laundry right out for you to see. Everyone up in each other's sweat. Everyone carrying a million people. Neapolitans remind me of my family. The way we fought with each other. With the neighbors when they tried to cheat us. I let her watch me for a while. Then she asked the question they all ask. What does he want? The truth is, he doesn't want anything at all. The people we carry aren't ghosts, they're us. Our own headaches with different names and faces. But nobody wants to hear that about brother Frank or ex-lover Rodica. They wanna hear that burning his clothes will quiet his spirit, that garlic planted under the window will stop her draining the soul. They want work. And if she's brought a thick enough wallet, I'll keep her busy for a year. She's confessing to me. I wish Lash could see the real Lash, because these times I really do act like a whore. I soften my eyes. I make sounds in my throat. I put my hand on the clients for a minute, like I want to lift her sad, hard life right off her. If he went out, he was drinking. And if he was drinking, he was fighting. At night, Mama and I pushed the kitchen table across the door to keep him in. It's normal. Daddy was always paying out bribes to the family of some guy Lash knocked down. Some girl, sometimes. When she tells me how her brother broke down the door, I nod. When she tells me how he got drunk and left with a friend's gun, I keep nodding. When she tells me which way he and his friends went, in what year it was, I lift my hand off her so quick she forgets it was ever there. That summer was 20 years ago. She must have been a girl like I was. 
I look from her face to her brother's and back. I know him. I saw him that day when I ran out to the yard to see who Lash was tangling with. If her brother cared enough about her to carry her, I might have seen her that day, too. But they were boys and selfish, so they carried almost no one. I was the only witness. I watched Lash wriggle free and grab a pot from the forge that had just started to wobble and redden. And in a swift, beautiful move, he ran up on that brother and clanged him on the head. I'll never forget the smell, like fat in a pan. He hurt someone, I'm sure of it. Her fingers stroke the table, shaking. I say nothing. Her brother had screamed like a cat. She needn't think he'd picked us off that easy. Killed someone. His scalp was still whistling when he got hold of his gun and opened the red center of Lash's head. I nod again. She's silent for a long minute. I watch her brother spit and scratch his head. His scalp is whole. She doesn't know what happened. She must have never seen him again after he left. What can I do? Her hand is open, fingers twitching like an animal waiting to die. I don't answer. She's serious, she'll ask twice. I used to be a fool. I used to swallow everything. There was a girl at school, Vi, who used to ask me to play. The other girls were happy to let me twirl my end of the jump rope forever. But Vi always said, and now Fen, and I'd leap in and show off. I didn't know any better. I could really jump. I did turbo folk moves so fast, even the snotty girls would clap and say, brava. Vi was clean, so clean. I learned new ways of being clean from her. Her knees, under her nails, even her school desk. She touched it up with the pink guma at the end of her pencil. None of us were carrying much then. Short capes with a pet or a hazy, smiling baba. But Vi had a full cloth the size of a grown woman's. She dragged her mother on it, a big, pushy tiskachka Vi could never jump high enough to shake. On her birthday, Vi stopped at my desk. My father's taking us for a picnic tomorrow. Will you come, Fen? Ma sucked her teeth when I repeated the invitation. Did she ask you twice? Twice? If not, she's making a joke of you. I didn't ask again, but I thought I saw her looking back for me as they headed up the mountain. I carried her for a while, light and delicate as ceramic. She rang like a bell when I dusted her. What can I do? The lady repeats. She does mean it. She doesn't just want to light a candle in the Duomo and run off. She wants a project. Some are like that. Most forget me until the next time they feel heavy and sad. She's got an easy life, of course, except for running or hot yoga or some miserable diet. Rich women like to suffer. It's an adventure for them. She's been here two hours and she's on my nerves, so it's going to cost her. The people who really need me are the ones who can't afford me, who chase off their ghosts with chicken bones and never heard the word aura in their lives. Let me step back into your aura. 
Before I get rid of her, I want to see if the world is working again. And if it's not, I want to set Lash on her brother one last time. He's ready. He lunges under her slippery tarp and cracks the brother on the knees. They fall and Lash straddles him, like he did in the yard. They might be making love until Lash starts throwing punches. I see the lady wince, but I keep my eyes on them. Her brother elbows and claws, trying to roll away. Lash fumbles around for his mitts. I don't carry a forge, but I know what he's doing, feeling for the heat, for the half-melted pot that's not there. The brother gets to his feet. He's sweating, but his gun is still on his shoulder. I step back before he can reach for it. When I speak, my voice is polished and hard as a river stone. You want to finish his business? I'll tell you where to go. I stare at the space above her head, picturing our yard, grown over with weeds. She'll have to start in Skopje, get a car. Easy for her. When you find the forge, fall to your knees and kiss the earth. Dig some scrap metal from the ash. I eye her clean fingernails and try to think of something worse, something dirty. Draw blood and mix it with the ash. Do it morning, noon, and night for three days. Your burden will get lighter. I put the directions in an envelope like a prescription. Call when it's done. Her forehead smooths, and the skin around her eyes relaxes. She'll do it. She knows how to pay a debt with her body. Ree and I are watching a movie on our tiny couch when my phone rings. Only our arms touch, no legs, not even the flab that's climbing onto our waist now that we're eating gelato again. I curse as if I'm absorbed by the car chase. I've done it. No hello, like a person in a movie. No, is it you? She might have the wrong number. I might be anyone. But I know her voice, so I congratulate her. She tells me she feels lighter, much lighter, as if she bled out hot lead. I felt it, that boy's brains there on the grass. And a woman. This cheap bitch tacking more people on. She'll want free advice for them, too. What woman? I don't know, but her perfume smelled like roses. I glance at Ma. She's standing with her mother's mother, looking down at the floor like she can see through it. My uncle used to bring her rose water on his way through Bulgaria. She'd have taken a whole bath in it if she could. She was by my side, I'm sure of it. Marie stands, shaking the blanket into a slippery rectangle. Something mean travels through me with the draft. If this lady wants more work, let her have it. Let her press that wax forehead into the ground and plead with Ma's dust. You're not with someone, are you? Some man? No, my husband thinks I'm with my sister. Good, you need to be cleansed for this. I try not to snort. She's eating it up. Tomorrow, go at dawn to the church at Salo. I'm seeing a grave there, the lady's name. She reads the details back to me. Ma's name, a raw whistle in her mouth. Press your lips to the name. If you feel her release you, you're done. 
I make my way down the hall, past the soft rain sounds at Rhee's door. In the morning, I can tell she's done it. Ma and Lash are lighter already. Not smaller, but lighter. Like pots heated and beaten out thin. But how, you say, when they're just copies, when they're not made of anything at all? I told you before, I can't explain it. It's not a science. I can't measure any of it. I can't tell you how many grams they lost or how that kiss, that blood got to us or how we knew it was ours. You've just heard The Light Body by Tiffany Wojnowski. And we've got her on the show today to talk about the story and life in general. So welcome to the show, Tiffany. Thanks, JW. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so happy to have you on. Well, we normally kick off the show, oh, of course, and our co-host, Melissa Collings, the one <laughs> voice behind so many of our stories. Melissa? Hello, hello. <laughs> Great. Okay. So, um, Tiffany, tell us a little about yourself. So, I would describe who I am now as a learning person, and that sort of joined hands with writing um, a couple years ago when I began writing professionally in the learning and development industry. Mm-hmm. So I started out as a teacher of English and rolled up to the profession of instructional design and performance consulting. And wow. now I write full time about learning, which it's really amazing, actually. It's been super interesting. I just mm. finished a large ebook about human centered culture, business, and learning. So that wow. was my big project this summer. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's great. That what was the ebook called for our, our listeners? It's called It's All About Your People. Uh, I believe human centered business, learning, and culture. I may have gotten mm. that that list mixed up, but it's um, by Sweet Rush. It's great. a great cultural transformation and learning company. Cool. Oh, yeah. that's terrific. That's terrific. Well, and we saw from your background materials that you have um, done some teaching in uh, New York City schools. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah. I was in the teaching fellows program a couple of years after grad school when I realized that an MFA did not have the, <laughs> the salary boosting power that I had hoped it would. I, <laughs> entered, oh, I entered the New York City Teaching Fellows Program and I was first stationed in the Bronx. And then after I finished my, my degree um, in teaching, I ended up moving on to Brooklyn and then finally Queens. Uh, I'm nice. sure that's quite an experience. Yeah, it was. It was. Yes, quite. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Oh. Maybe we can get into some of that a little bit later. Okay. Okay. I guess one of the first things we do try to get to is a little bit about the story itself. So I really enjoyed, I wouldn't call it a fantasy aspect, but the paranormal aspect of the story. And I just loved the voice of the main character. So I can you tell too. us? Yeah, wasn't it? It's just oh, so, thank you. It was so vibrant. and It was. It was fascinating. An immediate draw you in. Yes. Agreed. Mm. Yes. Okay. You know, do you have any, is there any reality behind this story or like real life experience or um, pure inspiration? Okay, so um, in my bio, I say I write a proprietary blend of fact and fiction about Eastern Europe. So um, without giving away any proprietary details, I will say that every story starts with a character. I am really, really interested in characters and personalities and why people are the way they are. So I always have a character. (laughs) Yes, character, character character-based fiction, right? I feel like the character really is the story. 
and sometimes I feel a little bit too much that way. And I have to remind myself to make something happen in real time. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, right. It can't just be backstory and exposition. Right. Cool details. You know, it's not a case study. Um, right. <laughs> yeah. But um, I would say recently all of my characters are real people um, with a real situation that I thought was interesting. And then for whatever reason, I give them a weird power. I'm really interested mm. in trauma, especially generational trauma and how that's carried down. I'm really interested in the epigenetics of trauma and how those play out in our lives and how we can see those working and how we behave like ourselves on a macro level and, and reenacting some of those things. So yeah. like the traditional superhero, I guess, um, these, you know, Ben's power is really uh, something that comes out of trauma, you know, it's wow. the <laughs> proverbial spider bite in the lab, you know? Um, yeah. But she's a real person and, or she's based on a real person. I can't yeah, say that. Yeah, sure, she's of course, of course. a real person as is. But yeah, it's a real person in a real situation. So I like to, when I write something that's a bit surreal, and by the way, I didn't always do that. I've only recently been drawn to that hmm. sort of genre. Mm -hmm. um, I just changed one thing. And usually just changing one thing, and making everything else super realistic is enough yeah. to make it a little bit uncanny. Right, right. That's cool. Wow. I think that's even more exciting that this person is based on a real person. I love knowing that. I think everybody mm -hmm. else will too, because it puts mm -hmm. you in a different mindset of mm -hmm. listening to the work. You know, it is having something from purely imagination is great, but when you, when you, have imagination meeting the real life, meeting the real world and real life. I think that's magical. And I think that's what happens with your story. Yeah, I agree. It's cool. Well, but I do have a question. So uh, you said a word I'm not familiar with, epi, epigene uh, epigenetic. What does that mean? Oh, okay. Well, I'm, I'm going to do my best with this one, not having a science degree. I'm an MFA person, so here's some science from a poet. Or, you know. <laughs> oh, we love that's the best. Yeah, it might be a little bit, you know, creative nonfiction here, but um, <laughs> from what I understand, um, you know, something happens when our parents go through a lot of trauma and, you know, it doesn't get factored into the genes right away. Obviously, it's, you know, it, it has something to do with the expression of the genes yeah. and that gets passed on. That is something that can be passed down. Um, a certain expression of that gene or a certain way that it can be switched on in a way that it can play out. Um, hmm. That's about the best way that I can explain it. I don't want to get into murky territory where I'm no, providing I, I, misinformation. I think <laughs> it's a good sure. way to describe it. I recently read a book. I've been doing a lot of food research mm. and trying to find mm. the best kind of diet. Mm. And epigenetics was a big part of a book that I read recently. Mm. Uh, seeing if it was right there. Because I can't think of the name of the book right now. Mm. Mm. But... It was a fascinating book and mm. that's exactly it. How And I, I'm fascinated by this part, this aspect that you're talking about because what my aspect I was looking at, different genes turned on by different environmental exposures like to, uh, you know, smells or chemicals and then foods mm. and the nutrients that you have. So it's the same thing you're talking about, uh, different traumas and things like that where genes can be turned off and on and expressed and passed. And uh, that is very fascinating to me um but yeah yeah so that, that was, was a much better description than i gave thank you melissa that was no no was fine. I, I was basically, was basically repeating what you said <laughs> you said it very well well you mentioned in some of the background 
background materials that you uh, like research? What kind of research specifically? You know, I don't do it in a very regimented way. Um, there's the poet in me again, but I read a lot of science news. I get, you know, the science news digest and I always look at the headlines and I see what weird new species they've found or <laughs> what's, what's going on with epigenetics. Um, I read a lot of creative nonfiction. Actually, recently I read um, a book called Entangled Life by Merlin Sheldrake, which is just a great name. And I was so excited because yes. they just featured it on Ted Lasso. Coach was reading it. I was like, that's, uh, that's the book. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, um, I just get excited about a lot of this. And then I'll find a book mentioned, you know, uh, cited in the, in the science news. And I go pursue that. And then I've always been really excited about science and just sort of the way we, you know, ourselves do one thing and then that plays out in the, on this macro level. So I've always been really fascinated by that. I write, mm. when I write, when I used to write more poetry, um, I used to write a lot about cells and evolution and not in, like in an, um, in a Calvino-esque kind of way, I was, I think I was aiming for, you know, in Cosmicomics yeah. when, you know, you have this narrator who's, who's this amorphous being who just moves through these different stages of, you know, the world. And, Many of them are imaginary and quite surreal, but they're very cool. So I like to imagine, I like to imagine sort of the subjective experience of science because, you know, like that, like that, like that article that I read in like my first philosophy class ever, you know, I want to know what is it like to be a bat or a trilobite or whatever yeah. it may be. I really want to know what that's like. And I really like imagining that. I've never grown out of that. Oh, I think that's great. <laughs> that's terrific. Yeah, it really is. I knew someone, and oh, oh, well, it's been a few years now, but they wrote a short story from a perspective of a banana. Wow. And I found that story so <laughs> interesting. That's I mean, this I was there for that banana. I mean, and it was, it wow. was great. It makes you think something, it sounds so silly, but it makes you think exactly putting yourself outside of yourself, you know, kind of getting mm -hmm. a different aspect. And I think you can always learn from that. So I think you have mm -hmm. a really good point there. Um, and that kind of segues into, and, and talk about this as much or as little as you want, but your history and the bio that you gave was very fascinating to me. And I think that your past and your writing will resonate with those that have had struggles in their past. Can you talk a little bit about how your past and maybe some of the struggles you've had has influenced your writing and, and how you connect with people in general? Yeah. Um, well, I'm super introverted. So connecting with people <laughs> takes me, takes me a little longer. I need to. I completely up. understand. <laughs> I'm the same. Any fellow introverts? Yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> I am a strong INFP for anyone who pays any attention to Myers-Briggs. And yeah, I, I really enjoy one-on-one -on -one conversations and, you know, jumping into the big stuff, which can feel like a lot uh, for folks who aren't quite ready for that. But I have a lot of trouble with small talk in a group. I will almost never go up and approach a group. Um, I can same. speak one-on-one -on -one or I can speak to a crowd, but nothing yeah. in between. I get you. I am the same way. Oh, yeah. I totally relate. This is exciting. Okay. Good. Um, so I think that my temperament is probably, from what I understand, your temperament is quite uh, inborn. You're, it, is, yeah. it is nature um, to an extent. But so what I think got switched on in my environment, I grew up an only child in a household, um, parents who, I had a parent who was 
quite mentally ill and a parent who isn't an enabler, excuse me. Oh, wow. And so I was constantly fed to the ill parent and left alone with that parent. And, you know, that, that was a lot to recover from. And, you know, that particular parent had borderline personality disorder, which tends to be a bit like a tornado that can just pull everyone into its path. (laughs) Everyone gets sucked in. It's a lot of very turbulent relationships, you know, idealization and then complete and utter devaluation. Um, And that can be really hard when the person is not receiving care. I think that when the person's receiving care and the whole family is on board and they're supportive, then it's much easier to work through when it has a name and when you're working on a project together towards wellness as a family. And let's just say that was not the project that my family had growing up. The project was isolation, um, a lot of fear of the world, a lot of suspicion. Yeah. and a lot of suspicion of other family members who would go out into the world. Um, that was seen as a betrayal to have other yeah. relationships, you know, to find sources of strength elsewhere. Mm. So I think I would have been an introvert anyway, but I had to find something in myself and drag it up to preserve this kernel of myself that nobody yeah. could access when, you know, nothing's private, you know, yeah. anything at any moment could blow up in your face. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what wow. writing became. It became a form of witness because um, when somebody has a disorder that is, you know, on, on literally the borderline between understanding what's real and understanding what's not, yeah. you feel that you need to take a record for yourself. Like, okay, I was just here and I just saw this happen. Okay, that's what happened. Because later, just the twisting and the re-narrative and you know, it gets refigured so many times that you start to feel like the one who isn't grasping reality, or you start to wonder if you've missed something or Mm -hmm. just misread the whole situation. And as a child, you know, before you know much about the world, that's really tough. Yeah, Yeah, sure. Figure out which way is up, you know? Yeah, Yeah. you're trying to walk on on a ground that is constantly unstable and constantly changing. And it's really tough. But it's very inspiring because a lot of people have that, you know, a lot of people Mm -hmm. are going through those struggles Mm -hmm. and it's their downfall. Mm -hmm. But I think Mm -hmm. it's very inspiring to see somebody who navigated that rough terrain and made Mm -hmm. it to the end. You know, I love how you described, you know, that holding on to a kernel of yourself Mm -hmm. um, that you stayed true through and finding an outlet, you know, writing was, was a part of that outlet for you. And I think that's awesome. And I think it makes your stories, you know, more in depth and more intriguing and, and more pulling you in. It's so true to life. Mm, so mm. <laughs> it feels like that. I mean, I get very emotional when yeah. I write, which is why it's hard for me to start. And also a, a healthy dose of laziness probably. Too. <laughs> <laughs> but sure. um, yeah, you know, and even writing um, wasn't fully a refuge. It wasn't fully safe because that parent would find, you know, they would go looking for my diary. They'd go oh, looking wow. for these oh accounts that I would write. And then, you know, I would get yelled at later for that. So I would write in my oh. diary and then I would tear it up because, you know, at least it was there. At least it was somewhere in the ether that this wow. narrative had existed. And I'm like, okay, I remember it on the page. I, yeah. I'm When I remember things or when I learn things, I literally picture a page with them on <laughs> so oh, i could remember great. that in my mind yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Hmm. that's very good so yeah. as an outlet i guess it helped you release some of that negative energy or you know, whatever it is that you're trying to manage but do you find it also provided some opportunity for you to create 
uh, stories that are, you know, I guess real in that sort of deeper sense? Yeah, you know, I, I've been trying also because obviously, you know, I can look back at that and say, oh God, that's such irresponsible parenting and no child should have to go through that, which is absolutely true. But um, exactly. I also try to look at what it gave me. I try to look at myself from less of a deficit perspective. And I think what it gave me is really a deep empathy. I can understand almost anything. Yeah. <laughs> I can, mm -hmm. If I know the psychology behind it, if I know what the person's been through, I can say, okay, I see how you arrived there. I see how you almost had no other way of reasoning. You almost had no other way of behaving. Right. Doesn't mean that it's okay to hurt others, but I can mm -hmm. see how you got there. Mm -hmm. And I really like exploring those spaces and understanding, you know, what, what makes people do these things that are really almost inexplicable from outside, you know, um, yeah. in my old position, I was really active in design thinking and I did a lot of what we call empathy interviews, which I love because they're you know, perfect, perfect for what I enjoy. And I would sit down with yeah. folks, you know, one-on-one -on -one, and on the surface, we would have nothing in common. And then by the end of that hour together, I would feel that I made a really deep connection with somebody, somebody who on the surface, you know, if we were all at a big party, I would, first of all, I wouldn't have gone because it's a big party, but if <laughs> <laughs> I was forced to go, I wouldn't have ever gone up to them and talked to them because I would assume, oh, I don't have anything in common with that person. And, yeah. you know, our politics look different. We look different. You know, I, uh -huh. I don't see anything that I, you know, could start with, but by being thrown together there and just having to look at that person and listen to them for an hour. It's really amazing. I really enjoyed those connections and I felt that it deepened my observation as a writer mm -hmm. because yeah. I could imagine um, the person behind certain modes of interaction and modes of communication. And that yeah. I think really opened my eyes a little more. That's huge. It well, is huge. Writing is really an empathetic experience. I think um, you as a writer are putting yourself in someone else's shoes and then you're kind of spelling it all out. And as a reader, you're doing the same thing from you're just absorbing it from the other end of that. And that's, yeah. that's a really, um, that's a really succinct way of saying it. So thank you. Oh yes. yeah, absolutely. When I used to teach writing, I used to tell my students that, you know, literature can make us better people. It can make us imagine ourselves into the person, you know, again, that we never would have talked to. We never would have engaged yeah. in any way. And we can understand a little more what it's like to be them, which, you know, I think is really needed right now. I think that we're all in a state of limbic activation, you know, <laughs> yeah. high cortisol, high stress. I mean, you're in that state, you literally can't, I mean, you know, to use a colloquial expression, you literally cannot use your frontal cortex to really assess the risk in a more accurate way. You really can't um, let that oxytocin go where you can bond with the other person and understand anything about them as a person. Mm, and I think yeah. that's part of why we're so divided right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's hard to put yourself in someone else's shoes and see. It kind of touches on what we were talking about earlier. You know, stepping outside of yourself when you're so inside, it's really hard to mm -hmm. see what anybody else is going through. But it is so important to do that because somebody you might judge them and think, well, they're just rude, or you might ca categorize them in some way, but. Mm -hmm they've just gone through something or they're reacting to something that has been, you know, traumatic in their life that day or, mm -hmm. or, um, you know, sad in their life or whatever. And I think mm -hmm. that's really something that we have to stop and think about as human beings 
Mm-hmm. So great points. Yeah. <laughs> I used to tell my students when I was teaching, you know, I said, you never know what's going on inside and you never yeah. know what's going on at home. Yes. And something I was surprised by over and over from my students was just how warm and kind and empathetic and giving they really were. Yeah. Even when they were going through some really rough stuff, you know, from homelessness to abuse yeah. to, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm, you know what's going on. I think it's really much easier to empathize, but now, you know, our social skills are <laughs> a little bit behind and I think our empathy skills right. are as well. Yeah. Right. right. So. Well, somehow, yeah, I guess I could, we could go down a whole nother path about social media, but somehow social yeah. media gives people permission to be mean. Like you yeah. say things that you would never say in person, but anyway, I don't, yeah, we don't need to go down. <laughs> um, well, so tell us about other things you're working on. Do you have any other projects yeah. going on right now? Do you, is this part of a, a broader work or you kind of oh, hinted gosh. at that, I thought. Um, yeah, you know, I've been writing a series of stories about um, the former Yugoslavia and Yes, they are all based in a real character and their real situation or just a story. And, and sometimes it's a one-liner that I've heard and I I just am just captivated by it. I imagine all these things into it. And, you know, I wouldn't call it nonfiction because it's not. It's a lot of, it's mostly imagination. But yeah. um, I try to imagine, you know, what would have made somebody do something or what might be behind this extraordinary life detail. So I have a few of those, actually. I have a few that I've published under a different name. Um, There's a story that I really liked a lot. I mean, I liked the process of writing it, which is rare. Um, (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) It's hard. You know, they're really, it's really complicated for me to write a story because I feel so emotionally tied to it. So it feels like a good cry a lot of the time. It's like, you know, you, you know, you need it, but you don't want to start. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Yeah. But you do feel better after. So. Right. Yeah. right. You know. That is such um, a cool way of describing it. <laughs> it's hard to run a start because it's, you know, it's, it's kind of like therapy. It's, it's a difficult conversation and, and you know, it's going to help you, but yeah, it's rough to start. So, um, yeah, I wrote a story about a girl who, um, went to Belgrade and worked in a glove factory at the age of 12. And that was all I knew. I couldn't get more from the person. And I just imagined, you know, mm-hmm. what would make you leave home from a small village in Serbia yeah. at 12 years old to work in a glove factory. And to talk about that is a really great time of your life where you really were yourself. And to say wow. that later, I mean, that's one of the first things that you say about yourself. Like what, what had to prompt you to leave? Mm-hmm. At 12? Mm-hmm. So I wrote, I wrote that story. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so there are just a lot. I mean, that's just one example, but I have a few going right now. Um, I have another one called A Body for Science. It's another Ooh. weird science fiction-y story, and it's in Garden Square Review. Uh, it was published in, in the spring, I think. Um, Great. And that, I actually used aliens, which is something that I never <laughs> put into a story. Wow. I just didn't feel that that was within <laughs> my repertoire to do well. But... <laughs> yeah. Turns Clearly out you did. Yeah. Turns out, yeah. I had to put them in the past and I had to be really careful about how I talked about them. So I didn't get yeah. to be too, you know, ancient aliens, but <laughs> <laughs> like, was it aliens? Yes, clearly. <laughs> yeah. I left the question. Oh, that's so so are, fun. are all of your, is it all short fiction or do you dabble in novel? Have you ever thought about writing a novel or have you? 
I did. I wrote one and it didn't go anywhere. And so I've tabled it. I think it was just sort of clearing a blockage. Um, (laughs) I have a story and I hate saying novel because I'm really afraid of the word, but it is a longer piece. It's a longer story that I have to tell. And it does have to do with trauma. And again, it starts with a real person um, from, you know, when I was quite young, when I was a teenager and that person died quite violently. And I felt that Mm she left her story with me mm. and oh, wow. I have big parts of it um, yeah. and I need to write some bigger parts of it. So I would like to do that, but it's really, I mean, talk about not wanting to start, but kind of knowing you need to start. That's yeah. really hard to do because I go back into my own grief, you know, my own mourning for her. And it's it still feels really That's fresh, hard. even though yeah. I was 15 at the time and I am not 15 any longer. yeah neither are we (laughs) that's right well um so how do you write what's your style of writing do you have like a schedule do you fit it in how do you make that happen you know it's tough i write all day for work and it feels very different i am able to separate it um i've actually found that when i when writing flows at work i can actually come come home i mean i'm always home but i can you know log off from work and yeah you know feel um you know, enabled to start. But at the same time, sometimes it's hard to be back at the computer. So I tend to write longhand to start. I feel that I'm more connected when I'm writing longhand. Hmm. And also it's less formal than like opening up a file and the anxiety yeah. of seeing that blank file blank staring yeah, at right. me. <laughs> yeah. So I can start, I can say, okay, I'm just going to do some journaling. And that's, you know, therapeutic writing that's just for myself. Yeah. And then I have an idea. So if I put it in my journal, it's not that serious. It's just just a thing that I thought. It's, you know, just a thought. Um, You're easing into it. Yeah, it's just (laughs) maybe it's something, maybe it's not. Okay. Um, And then I will take that and then I will put it on another piece of paper and try to see if I can put it together longhand. And then once I have a draft that I feel that, you know, I I have the meat and potatoes and now I'm going to, you know, do the editing, um, I need to be able to treat it as a little bit more of an object and then I can type it out or I, I do my voice notes and let voice notes butcher that. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's funny. <laughs> yeah. And then I feel I can, you know, work with it a little more. I can um, be, I can step back a little bit and say, okay, this is a product and now I'm going to edit it and I'm going to look at it a little bit more critically and, and stand away from it a little. Make yeah. some choices. Sophie's choices. Yeah. Well, oh, wow. <laughs> Kill some darlings. Oh, that's so hard. <laughs> do you do your writing at night then, primarily? I, I am more of an owl than a lark, uh, absolutely. And I've just had to embrace that. I don't know. There's something about writing at night that I'm just, things are coming together more. I guess maybe yeah. my subconscious has been chewing on things during the day and it's ready to start spitting some things out. Sorry, it's hmm. not very appealing. but <laughs> <laughs> It all starts out horrible. That's kind of the way it goes. Yeah, yeah right? <laughs> Yeah. That is very interesting. So who do you share your work with first? Who's your first reader? Oh, that's tough. Um, I don't have much of a community, so I have to sort of hit my friends up to mm. <laughs> to look at something and say, hey, you know, do you have some time to do oh. something? And, you know, um, it's hard because they're busy um, and yeah. I usually need feedback pretty quickly if I'm going to 
keep going with something. I want to kind right. of capitalize on my momentum. Exactly. Um, there are a couple of friends who I can count on to get back to me to say, hey, you know, this part was confusing. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that I know that I tend to do that I really need at least one other pair of eyes for is that I skip the one thing that would make a piece make sense. Like I don't say yeah. it because I'm like, oh, it's obvious. Right. It's in your head. <laughs> and it is not. It is not obvious. Yes, <laughs> and sometimes I do it's that all the time. a lie. Right. It's hard, you know, because you see it so clearly in your own mind. And, yeah. you know, it's this whole world that's alive for you. And then you forget to just write the two or three sentences that would make it make sense. So <laughs> it happens to a lot of writers. I think. It does. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that's normal. Okay. Yes. yes. <laughs> totally. Good. Good to know. Um, well, I do that a lot and I'm very aware of it. I'm like, I know there's something I'm not seeing. Damn it. What is it? Um, yeah. Yeah. But I can only catch so much. I really exactly. need someone who's just in a totally different world and knows nothing mm -hmm. about my world to yes. look at and say, okay, so she's dragging people around on the table. Go, okay, well, how does this work? And how does this work? Um, <laughs> and I really wanted to not reference the, the Buñuel movie because that's exactly what I was picturing. I'm like, I can't say that because that's not in this character's frame of reference. Which I movie? I did, it, did, it broke up for There's, me. There's um, a Buñuel movie, Luis Buñuel from the... God, the 30s. It's a surrealist film, and ah, the Chien Andalou. It's uh, the Andalusian dog. And in mm. this movie, there's this famous scene where um, the man gets up from a table and he drags the whole tablecloth with him, and it's laden with, you know, a tea set or plates or whatever, and he mm -hmm. just drags it behind him. And that's exactly what I was picturing. I'm like, that is exactly what I could show to people to have them get it. And yeah. I can't use it because that is not yeah. within this character's frame of reference. Uh, and it would feel like the author coming in and saying, see, here's what I made. Yeah. yeah. Let me show yeah. you. Right. <laughs> right. But yeah. Like this other artist did. No, we can't, that doesn't work. That was not appropriate for that one. Yeah. Felt too academic and too didactic. Well, I think the way you described it was just amazing. I loved it. Uh, and how... Um, when kids start off, they're like little towels or something along those lines. And um, <laughs> I just thought of it so, and they had like a little stuffed animal on it or something, or, you know, a pet. I thought it was so great. So uh, It's true. Yeah. That description in there is, it's so visceral, yeah. you know, and I love that everybody yeah. has that past and to see it in that way, in a tangible way, it's just fascinating. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, I agree. And it's like baggage. Everybody has baggage. Their emotional yeah, baggage. You literally. basically turn their emotions into a, something they're dragging around that people can yeah. see. <laughs> well, yeah. one person can see anyway. And one of right. my favorite, one of my favorite parts is when somebody's asleep, I'll dust them off and wipe their right. faces. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, that is such, that's so, I don't want to use the word cute, but that's what's coming to my mind right now. It was so much more mm -hmm. than cute. But in that moment, it's just like, it's, it was so much, you know, it had that muchness mm -hmm. to it. I mm. thought it was just great. <laughs> yeah, Crazy. I was looking for a way to really um, externalize empathy and describe the kind yeah. of emotional care that we do for each other and find a way to make that visible. Because I yeah. think when we talk about it, it's really hard to, to get at it it's very it ephemeral yeah. and it's hard to talk about how that that's real work you know it is yeah. real work to do and it can be draining it can be exhausting um but it does have real effects i mean we do feel literally lighter when we can we can be treated with empathy and when somebody does perform some of that care for us yes yeah that's such a great point is well, as usual, we're come up on time already. I we, can't every time the show happens, we're like, wow, it's already been 30 minutes. <laughs> I know. But, um, well, okay. So normally we end the show with, you know, you telling, since you've been published before, obviously, you've had mm -hmm. some experience in this. And 
do you have any advice to aspiring writers or readers that are maybe curious about um, the process or ways to get better or resources, whatever you want to, whatever you want to pass on? Sure. Well, what I want to encourage everyone um, to do is to find a way to make writing part of your life rather than making writing your whole life. Um, for a long time, I really felt like a failure because I mm. couldn't make money by writing full time. Mm. And that is extremely, extremely rare. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. really rare. And mm -hmm. I used to show that to my students with a Venn diagram showing everyone, you know, who would get one story published, everyone who would, you know, get two and so on, and who would get a novel. And of those people who get a novel, how many people make a living wage from it? And it's basically Stephen King and that's it. But, um, it's very discouraging. Right, exactly. So that can be really discouraging. So I thought, well, gosh, if I hadn't gone into it with those expectations, I think that I would have been more at peace with how hmm. my writing so-called career is going or how my, you know, my publications are going. I think I would have been much happier and much more content. And I could have channeled some of that energy around the anxiety of not being a real writer into yeah. actually writing. So, yeah. um, you know, especially as a teacher, I know that a lot of writers or people who enjoy good writing are, are teachers. And I would say, you know, when you have a student who, who loves writing, maybe don't tell them like someday you're going to be an author, but someday you're going to be an author in addition to a scientist or a geologist or whatever right. it is you're going to end up being. But I think um, in the U.S. anyway, there's not a great way to live by writing um, yeah. to make that very mm -hmm. secure and don't, don't hold that up as the model. Um, that's a, that's some great advice. It is. Make the it's arts really part of your life. Yeah. <laughs> right. But yeah. Right. I mean, you've got to really know people you've got to already kind of not need an income to try to make your income in right. this very ephemeral, insecure way. <laughs> yeah. I liked what you said about, you know, you feeling like a failure. This mm -hmm. writing is a business where you, you have so much um, negativity being thrown at you, so much rejection. Mm -hmm. I guess that's the negativity. Mm -hmm. And you have to find a way of coping with that or else you won't succeed and you won't you won't accomplish anything that you set out to. So putting it in the proper perspective is absolutely something that is a, is a treasured piece of advice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Well. <laughs> Don't go into yeah. writing for the money. <laughs> no, absolutely yeah. not. Absolutely not. It's a lot of working for free and then even paying if you want to improve, you know, going to right. workshops and, right. so on and so forth. And, you know, and I think that people overvalue, um, youth or starting out and i don't think the practice like the long-term practice where you can start getting good at saying what you want to say and really finding your style i think we we tend to value oh this 22 year old wrote a novel you know right out of college and that's great for them but that's not the way a writing practice looks a lot of times it takes a long right. time to mm -hmm. get good that's, usually yeah yeah very that's true. wise <laughs> all right well Thank you so much, Tiffany, for coming on the show. We really enjoyed yes. your story. So thankful you submitted it. And um, we're excited to get this show out to everybody. So thank, thank you again for coming on. Yes, thanks so much. It's been great. Thanks, Melissa, Mr. W. I've appreciated the conversation. It's been really nice. Great. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. If so, please help us spread the word by telling your friends or giving us a rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Those reviews really make a difference. We'd like to thank the folks at Literature and Latte, the makers of Scrivener, for sponsoring the podcast and providing an amazing tool for writers. If you'd like to take your writing to the next level and use a tool designed for writers by writers, then give Scrivener a try. What have you got to lose? 
The Story Discovery Podcast is a free, narrated podcast of the works that appear in Etched Onyx Magazine. Edited by J.W. McAteer, all stories and poems are available for free at onyxpublications.com. That's O-N-Y-X publications.com. If you'd like to support the continuation of this podcast and or the magazine, please consider a small donation through Patreon at patreon.com slash onyxpublications. As a nano publishing house, we are always looking for new works to showcase. If you'd like to submit a story or poem for consideration, please visit the submissions page on our website. In the meantime, keep reading and writing.